It's been one month since thousands of Hamas militants launched an attack on Israel. Today, Israel's military says it's fighting in the depths of Gaza City as hundreds of Palestinian civilians try to escape the combat. Coming up, an Israeli politician and military reservist talks about the morning of the Hamas attacks. It's Tuesday, November 7th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a surgeon tells us what he's seen in 11 days at a hospital in Gaza. Antibiotic resistance is a growing issue when it comes to treating childhood illnesses around the world. Also, singer, actor, and director Barbara Streisand is an American icon, though she sometimes had to fight for control of her career. I became what I wanted to be. I don't want somebody telling me what I can't be. Streisand talks about her legacy and her new memoir. Coming up, it's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Voters in several states are deciding consequential races and ballot issues, and the elections could have major implications for abortion rights. As NPR's Sarah McCammon tells us, the off-year contests are widely seen as another test of the nationwide energy around the abortion issue. It's been more than a year since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and many voters in last year's midterms ranked abortion as a top issue in exit polls. This year, Ohio voters are considering a state constitutional amendment that would guarantee the right to reproductive health decisions, including abortion, at least up to fetal viability. In Virginia, where control of the legislature is currently split, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin has said he would support a 15-week abortion ban with limited exceptions if his party were to take full control. Meanwhile, Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Beshear, who's running for re-election, has gone after his Republican challenger's support for state laws banning most abortions in that state. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump's civil fraud trial continues tomorrow in New York with testimony from his eldest daughter, Ivanka Trump. Stephen Salzberg, a professor of law at George Washington University Law School, says this and other cases against the Republican don't seem to be doing any harm to GOP support for Trump's 2024 presidential run. For a lot of the people who are Trump fans, they will believe it. They will believe that the four criminal trials and this civil trial law all part of a campaign to essentially knock him out of the race. It's ironic that there probably has never been any individual litigating more cases at the same time and finding that his ratings have gone up as a result. Recent polls show Trump leading President Biden in a number of battleground states ahead of primary contests. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the army's ground operation is putting intense pressure on Hamas militants in Gaza. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the Israeli leader reiterated that he's not interested in a ceasefire. Prime Minister Netanyahu said the Israeli military was, quote, reaching places Hamas did not think we would reach. We have eliminated thousands of terrorists above and below the ground. It was a reference to the Hamas tunnel network that Israel is seeking to root out in Gaza. Over the past week, Israeli troops have moved into many parts of northern Gaza and have focused their efforts in and around Gaza City. Despite growing international calls for a ceasefire, Netanyahu said he would not support one unless Hamas released the more than 200 hostages it took in its attack on October 7th, exactly one month ago. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Healy administration expects the Massachusetts family shelter system to hit capacity within the next two days. After that, homeless families will be placed on a wait list. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, the state is creating a new fund to help with waitlisted families. The new $5 million grant program is federally supported and will be administered by United Way. Community partners will be able to apply for the money to help create short-term overnight shelter for families with no other options. We're literally days into crafting this work. United Way CEO Bob Giannino says he's not sure how many families the fund could support. We believe that this will be an important early start. But when the waitlist goes into effect, there still won't be a designated safe place for families to stay until a shelter unit is available. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Massachusetts nurses and healthcare lobbyists are encouraging lawmakers to allow the state to join an interstate nurse licensure compact. They said at a hearing on Beacon Hill today, the compact could help with the state's nursing shortage and streamline care across state lines. It would also allow nurses more flexibility with where they want to live and work. Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and Rhode Island are among the 41 states that are already part of the compact. A 24-year-old man faces an animal cruelty charge after police found the body of a dog decomposing in his apartment in Chelsea. Police say they found the animal last month after Masi Ennis's neighbors complained about an odor in the building. He is due in court next month. Vice President Kamala Harris is heading to Boston this week. She'll fly into Logan Airport tomorrow. On Thursday, she'll be taking part in a conversation with members of apprenticeship programs. In the forecast, 63 degrees in the Boston area. Beautifully warm day today. Should have showers around through the next couple of hours in some areas. Tonight, mainly dry, though. A lot cooler, about 35 for a low. Tomorrow should be nice but brisk sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Gusty winds tomorrow. 63 now in Boston at 407. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tel Aviv. A lot of people here in Israel had a challenging, disorienting day on October 7th, one month ago exactly, the day Hamas attacked. But no one has a story like Yair Golan. Golan is a politician. He was a member of the Knesset, Israel's parliament, until last year. His party is on the left of Israel's political spectrum. Golan joined the recent massive street protests against the far-right government led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Golan is also a general. In the reserves, not active duty, but the morning of the Hamas attack, October 7th, he told me instinct kicked in. So by, I think, 8 o'clock, 8.30, I put on my uniform and I, I'm going to my old headquarters in the Home Front Command. So stop there a second. You said you, I'm putting on my uniform. Why was that your first thought, I have to go put on my uniform? Because... It's so unusual and sounds so bad that, you know, I cannot stay at home and I'm still in good shape. You know, I can fight. (laughs) 
Yair Golan had no weapon, no ammo. He was handed back his old rifle. He told me, as we chatted over tea in his back garden the other day, that his next instinct that morning was to drive south, as close as he could get to the music festival that Hamas had attacked and where people had been murdered and taken hostage. And then I got a phone call from my sister. And she asked me whether I can take someone guys from the, who escaped the Nova Festival, whether I can take them out of the combating zone to a safe location. She sent me the location, you know, on Google Map. So I drove my Toyota Yaris through the fields and I managed to find them. Who was it? Three guys who escaped a terrorist attack. And they were, what, hiding, but still in danger they were, because they who were knew? Hide, they were hiding inside bushes. They were under trauma, of course. And uh, when I approached them, you know, I jump off the car and uh, I start to shout them, you know, uh, it's me, it's General Golan, you are safe, it's okay, please get out of the bushes. And that's what they did. <laughs> it's surreal. What's going through your head at this moment? Just focus, mission? Yeah. Okay. That's it. So I took them out. And then I got another phone call from an Arts journalist, Neil Gontaj. Can you bring my son back? <laughs> send me a location. Well, the same procedure. He sent me a location. I drove there, found them, and took them out. And then I got another phone call. Is word spreading? General Golan is there? Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. If yeah. I don't know how. kids I in trouble? I don't know <laughs> how, but I did it over and over, but three times, three consecutive times. And the, in the third time, it was much closer to the Nova Festival location. And when I drove along the road, suddenly I realized the horror. Because there were bodies, you know, along the road. You know, I had to drive my car very cautiously because, you know, in order not to to hit one of the bodies. You're making a swerving motion yeah, yeah, yeah. with so your hand. Yeah. All over the road. Why do this? There are active duty Israeli soldiers around the area. I, I Why think do this? That the feeling was that everything collapsed. You need to do your best in order to contribute something to the overall effort. The Israeli press across the political spectrum is calling you a hero. Is that a strange feeling for someone who... Um Fought all over his, his life. Well, I can tell you the following. Yeah. And it's not a matter of modesty. It's comparing to other things that I did in my life, it was relatively less dangerous. I fought a lot. I managed to question so many people who really fought the terrorists in the kibbutzim, in the villages, in the towns. I can tell you that if you look for bravery, talk to them, not to me. Your beautiful wife is standing here in the doorway. <laughs> and while we were waiting for you, she was telling me you have five sons together. Um, the oldest is 34 and the youngest is 19. Yeah. And he You're will right. enlist in two weeks. And then all five will be serving their country? Uh, I think this is, the, this is a very Israeli story. 
How do you talk to them about the fight and what, what would be worth fighting and maybe dying for? <laughs> it's really it's interesting, you know, with my two elder sons, oh, even with the third one. Uh, it's, it's a kind of a professional discussions. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I try to provide them, you know. Uh, You're a general. I, I get uh, it. Professional To, to provide them is yeah. part of my experience, you know, professional guidance. As a father, is that conversation different? Yes, all the time. Because you think about every word. Because if you give an advice that could be lethal, wow, you're going to take it with you for the rest of your life. So I, it's a very cautious discussion for my, for my part. And I heard you had a wedding for one of your sons in this garden where we're <laughs> you sitting. You everything. Last, I got all the gossip. <laughs> but it sounds like there's hope and joy amid this it was here. very difficult <laughs> moment. Right here, right behind you. Yeah, yeah. There's hope and joy still? Well, we need to leave. And we need to, to go as soon as possible to normality. There is, you know, I, I learned it from my father. My, my father was born in Germany and he escaped Germany while he was five years old. And half of his family was executed by the Nazis. And he told me all the time, we are going to concentrate on building, not on sorrow, not on, you know, all kind of negative feelings. We must be optimistic. And I think this is a lesson I, that leads me through my adult life. We need to be, it's not just we need to be optimistic. We need to build this optimism. We need to, to work hard in order to convince ourselves and others that we could do something really, really good. And, you know, I look at, at the Israeli nation, we did something fantastic. We need to concentrate right now, not on revenge, but on building, building, rebuilding our nation. This is a true political goal. <laughs> Yair Golan, thank you. Thank you very much. Yair Golan, Israeli politician, general, and father. On March 22, 1758, Anne Lucer wrote a letter to her husband, an officer on a French warship. Monsieur et Madame Mayou vous embrasse, et moi? Mr. and Ms. Mayou send their best, and I, who am in pain to possess you, and until this happy moment, I am and will be for the rest of my life in deepest friendship. All yours, my dear husband. Your obedient wife, Nanette. But Lucere's husband was imprisoned in England and never received her love note. Hers is among scores of letters sent during the Seven Years' War, which, until recently, sat unopened in Britain's National Archives, bound with white ribbon. I had to basically pull the string a bit like a Christmas gift, and there there were three little 
packets of letters which were clearly unopened they were still sealed I, I immediately felt like you know my heart started to beat faster and I felt like ooh, this looks like them there might be some secrets in there University of Cambridge historian Renaud Morieu says the letters were written on expensive, heavy paper. Some had seals of red wax. They're covered with ink, but not just from top to bottom. The sentences are written from left to right, but also they're written in the margin. You have to turn the letter around in order to continue reading. Many were addressed to sailors on the Galate warship. When the British Navy captured it in 1758, the letters made their way to England, where they remained sealed for centuries. In another letter, an upset mother scolds her son for not writing. On the first day of the year you have written to your fiancé, I think more about you than you about me. In any case, I wish you a happy new year filled with blessings of the Lord. I think I am for the tomb. I have been ill for three weeks. The son who's at sea is only writing to his fiancée. And here you feel that there is some, some kind of like really long, ancient kind of trope about uh, tensions in the family between the mother and, and the daughter-in-law. Maria published his findings this week in the French history journal Annals of History and Social Sciences. He says the letters offer a rare glimpse at how common people dealt with the uncertainty of war and the extraordinary efforts they made to reach loved ones. Some families even piggybacked on the love letters of others, inserting their own messages to sons, brothers, and husbands, in hopes that something, anything, would get through. In every letter, you've got actually multiple correspondence. So the big argument, so to speak, of the article is to say that this is really a form of collective communication. Collective communication, which, to Maria, is a testament to the power of the collective in times of crisis. Like a fool I went This is All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. It was an update on Wall Street today. The Dow grew by about two-tenths of a percent. The S&P rose about a quarter of a percent. The Nasdaq was up nearly a full percent. East Boston Neighborhood Health Center is opening a new behavioral health urgent care service for same-day care. It'll serve kids, teenagers, and adults, many of whom are immigrants. The urgent care facility will open this Thursday. The center says it's the largest community-based primary care health system in Massachusetts. It's 418. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Today's likely to have been the warmest day of the week, 63 degrees still. Tonight will be down around the mid-30s with blustery winds. Tomorrow, still windy, a lot chillier, only in the mid-40s tops, despite sunny skies tomorrow. Should see some sleet early on Thursday with clouds and showers during the day, stuck in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, showcasing the all-new 2024 Subaru Outback, available now. CitysideSubaru.com and Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. 
If you're taking a road trip this fall, use the drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live or tap on the WBUR app to rewind shows and play them back. Download the app for free before you hit the road. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Mississippi incumbent Governor Tate Reeves has had every advantage this election cycle, from the political makeup of this deeply red state to his fundraising acumen. But one was once seen as a slam dunk for Republicans, has turned into Democrats' best shot at the governor's mansion in two decades. Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Will Stribling reports. Here in Mississippi, uh, two of the most important things to, to folks are church and football. The Ole Miss is playing against Texas A&M, so I've been walking around. There are a whole lot of rebels for Tate Reeves signs and stickers around. Definitely a lot of Republican voters out here today. Well, first, uh, just tell me your name, where you're from, and what you do. I'm Jeffrey Yost. I'm from Oxford, Mississippi, and I'm a business development consultant in the defense industry. He plans to vote for incumbent Governor Tate Reeves. What meant the most to me is the leadership that he showed during the COVID pandemic. He didn't just completely lock us down. But even Yost admits Reeves faces an unusually tough opponent and moderate populist Democrat Brandon Presley. Brandon is likable and he's a good guy and so you know it's going to be a tough race for Tate. I think he'll win but nobody dislikes Brandon Presley. Presley's political career began when he was elected mayor in his small northern Mississippi hometown at only 23 years old, the youngest ever elected in the state. Now a utility regulator, he needed name ID outside of his area. To get it, he's relying on a family connection to a certain Mississippi celebrity. One through a party in the county jail. Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. This is my cousin Elvis. He had a song about making things shake, rattle, and roll. I'm Brandon Presley, and that's the kind of governor I'll be. Presley said he wants to make the state's economy work better for people with lower incomes by eliminating the state's highest in the nation grocery tax and cutting car tax fees in half. And as Elvis would say, thank you very much. Reeves, who got a last-minute endorsement from former President Trump, has tried to portray Presley as a puppet of liberal national Democrats. They don't just want to change governors, they want to change Mississippi. But DJ James, a 61-year-old Holmes County resident who works three jobs, says that's not a bad thing. Tate Reeves is talking about uh, Brandon Presley wants to change Mississippi. Mississippi needs to change. We need economic development. You understand? We need. You can't buy your medicine, pay for your doctor visit. Most people start off with $10 an hour. A family of four cannot survive off of $10 an hour. James lives in the Mississippi Delta, a historically and culturally significant region of the state, but also one of the poorest areas in the country. It's a place candidates for statewide office often ignore on the campaign trail. Presley's made a point to visit multiple times. A lot of folks in the Delta feel left out and, and want to make sure, I want to make sure that they understand that their vote for governor in this race will in fact not only count but make a difference in their life. 
Much of Presley's statewide tour is focused on criticizing Reeves' refusal to expand Medicaid. Now we're talking about 230,000 working people that would benefit from Medicaid expansion. For years, Reeves has been Mississippi's most prominent and fierce opponent of Medicaid expansion, which he refers to as welfare expansion. Adding 300,000 able-bodied adults to the welfare rolls is not the right thing to do. Demetrius Bedell, a lifelong Greenwood resident and Army veteran, says it's not welfare, it's survival. His city's hospital has long suffered financial woes. If it closes, Bedell says it's going to cost people their lives. What about the people that don't have a car? What about people that when they get shot? What about people that have a heart attack or a stroke? That hospital is needed. If you got to take from Greenwood to go to Grenada, it's going to take you four to five minutes to an hour. That person's going to die halfway to Grenada. Jessica Taylor analyzes governor's races for the Cook Political Report. Among Republicans, they worry that that has just been a very, very effective message, that Medicaid expansion has particular resonance in a state like Mississippi. Smelling blood in the water. The National Democratic Governors Association has pumped nearly $7 million into Presley's campaign. But even with such a strong showing from Presley, Taylor says it still Reeves' race to lose. There's maybe a ceiling where Democrats can get in Mississippi. Getting over 50 is just a Herculean task. If neither candidate gets over 50 percent, the state would head to an unprecedented runoff election. For NPR News, I'm Will Stribling in Jackson. In Washington, D.C., a team of diplomats from China is getting ready to head home. The diplomats in this case are covered with black and white fur and spend most of their time eating bamboo. Maybe you've already guessed we're talking about giant pandas. From member station WAMU, Jacob Fenston reports. President Richard Nixon visited Communist China in February 1972, a historic thaw in the middle of the Cold War. Two months later, Beijing sent a gift back to Washington. A pair of giant pandas to the American people. On a chilly April morning at the National Zoo, a delegation from China presented the bears to First Lady Pat Nixon. On behalf of the people of the United States, the pandas, she said, would be enjoyed by millions of Americans. There'd been no pandas at all in the U.S. for decades. I think pandemonium is going to break out right here at the zoo. She was right. Pandemonium did break out, and it's going strong 51 years later. See Pandy right there? I do see him right there. He's so cute, right? Yeah. Four-year-old Madeline loves pandas. She's at the National Zoo for her birthday, wearing a panda costume. Her mom, Christine Murray, says they came down from Pennsylvania to say goodbye. Pandas only exist in the wild in China, so the country has a monopoly on one of the world's cutest animals. Since 1972, China has gifted or loaned pandas to countries across the globe, often coinciding with major trade deals. It's been dubbed panda diplomacy. But now these very popular ambassadors are being recalled. I think that this has been a knee-jerk reaction to a very ugly period in U.S.-China relations. Dennis Wilder is a professor at Georgetown University and a former White House China official. He says the Chinese were angered by Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year. Then things soured even more after the U.S. shot down the alleged Chinese spy balloon early this year. It's not surprising, he says, that China would withhold pandas in response. Panda diplomacy has been positive, but panda diplomacy can become punitive panda diplomacy as well. It's not just the D.C. pandas. Other U.S. zoos have had to send their animals back after leases expired and were not renewed. The last giant pandas in the country are in Atlanta, and they're scheduled to head home early next year. 
Panda diplomacy appears to have been wildly successful, maybe even too successful, says Elena Songster. She's a history professor at St. Mary's College of California, and she wrote the book Panda Nation. In places like D.C., she says, the lovable bears have become entwined with local identity. I think in some ways, people identify the panda as theirs as much as or more than they think of it as something from China. As the D.C. Zoo prepares for the pandas to leave, keeper Marielle Lolly shows off one of the crates they'll travel in. Right over here on the other side of the stairs. So it is that massive white thing. It's about. She's been working on crate training the bears, just like you would with a pet. They've gotten used to hanging out in the big metal boxes, especially the female, Mei Shang. She would just sit in the crate all day if we let her. Um, she doesn't even need a reward when she goes in there at this point. She just wants to sit in there. Soon, the three pandas will be loaded into a FedEx Boeing 777 freight plane, along with more than 200 pounds of bamboo. That's one day's meal for the bears. National Zoo officials say they haven't yet begun talks to get more pandas from China, but they're optimistic panda diplomacy isn't over. In fact, while the panda house is empty, the zoo plans to spend $2.5 million revamping the panda enclosure. They hope sometime soon it will again be filled with cute bamboo-eating bears. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Fenston. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Barbara Streisand is writing her memoir at 81 years old. She talks about her six-decade-long career as a singer, actor, and icon. That's coming up in about six minutes. Celtics and Bruins are both off the job tonight. The Celtics play tomorrow. The Bruins play on Thursday. We've got some changeable weather ahead. Tonight, partly cloudy, pretty windy and cold, about 35 degrees. Tomorrow should only make it to the mid-40s. Sunshine, strong winds once again. Some gusts as high tomorrow as 32 miles an hour. For Thursday, a preview of winter. Should be windy with some sleet and a cold rain in the morning. Temperatures in the mid-40s once again. Sunset today is in about two minutes at 4.31. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com. And the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. Dr. Linda Vidon, Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ohio voters are going to the polls this afternoon to cast ballots on a constitutional amendment to protect abortion rights, as well as a law that could legalize marijuana for recreational use. From Ohio Public Radio, Joe Ingalls reports some college students are finding it difficult to vote. Nia Lewis of Common Cause Ohio says college students in various parts of the state and country are reporting they didn't receive their mail-in ballots they requested. And she says the state's online tracker isn't helpful in locating those ballots. You can see that they mailed you a ballot, but then there's this kind of black hole where you don't know what's happened then. 
Lewis says college students who find themselves in this situation should vote provisionally if possible. It's unclear how many students are affected, but Lewis says her group has heard from dozens. For NPR News, I'm Joe Ingalls in Columbus. Israeli forces are battling Hamas militants inside Gaza's largest city one month into a war that's claimed more than 10,000 lives in Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who spoke with President Biden, says Israel will continue to fight until it destroys Hamas militants' uh, rule in Gaza. Here's White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby talking about increasing humanitarian aid in the war-torn region. Yesterday, the president spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, he certainly discussed the need to continue to try to accelerate and increase the amount of humanitarian assistance that's going in. Uh, he also talked about the importance of pauses in the fighting to allow for aid to get in, people to get out, and for uh, hostages to be released. We'll keep those, that, that dialogue going. Since last week, more than 400 Americans were able to escape through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's election day in dozens of communities, including Boston. Voters in Boston are choosing a slate of new at-large and district city councilors. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports on the competitive race in Jamaica Plain and West Roxbury, where residents are choosing between a progressive and more moderate candidate. Progressives currently have a supermajority on the city council, but that could change after today's vote. Jamaica Plain voter Kira Grenier says she's voting for labor attorney Ben Weber, who supports progressive priorities like rent control. I found Ben to be more like action-oriented and more like confident and decisive. Paul Sullivan of West Roxbury says he's voting for IT director William King because he opposes new bike lanes in the district. I think it's ultimately going to create more danger for the bicyclists where it's intended to keep them safer. Polls are open until 8 o'clock tonight. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Somerset residents last night voted overwhelmingly at town meeting to approve a tax break to bring an offshore wind project to the town. The deal will give Prismian Group more than $20 million in tax relief over a six-year period. The company plans to build a 47-acre manufacturing plant that will produce undersea cables for offshore and wind turbines. A former leader at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is set to head the National Institutes of Health. Senate lawmakers today approved the appointment of Monica Bertignoli as NIH director. She is currently the director of the National Cancer Institute. Bertignoli previously led Dana-Farber's surgical oncology unit. Senate approval today clears the way for the White House to officially name her to the position. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. You might need to pull up the blankets tonight. Should be down around freezing. Tomorrow, sunny, windy, chilly, about 46 degrees tops. Thursday should stay in the mid-40s with a wintry mix of sleet and rain early in the day, followed by just a lot of clouds. 63 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.35. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox with Payback.
a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morgan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. There are few performers who are easily identified by one word, Cher, Bono, Beyonce, and Streisand. Streisand is, of course, the legendary singer, actress, and director, Barbara Streisand. And today, Streisand's memoir, My Name is Barbara, is out. To mark the publication, she sat down with our colleague, Brittany Luce. She hosts It's Been a Minute, and she joins me now to tell us all about that interview. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Brittany, before we get into this interview... I want to talk about you a little bit here. (laughs) I have heard that when you asked Barbara Streisand to do this interview, you told her that this is an interview that you have spent your entire life preparing for. Tell us about that. That is absolutely right. I am a recovering theater kid, so I obviously grew up loving Barbara and watching her movies. As I've gotten older and I understood just how much she was up against as a young woman in Hollywood. I really grew to have a deeper understanding and appreciation for just how much she's accomplished and how influential she is. I can already tell by hearing you describe this, this is going to be an incredible conversation. And we're going to hear some of it now. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Can you just set up the tape for us? Yes, yes, yes. So we all know Barbara Streisand is one of the greatest performers of all time, especially for her voice. But I like to think of her as one of our most influential image makers of all time, particularly through her work as a film director. So of course, her film directorial debut was Yentl in 1983. We talked about all she went through to try to get that movie made. She made sure that I knew it took her 15 years for the record. Um, But one of the reasons why it took so long for the film to get made is because she was told by sometimes other Jewish executives that the story was too Jewish to be appealing to mainstream audiences. And I asked her how she felt about that. And she gave this really measured and reasoned explanation of where she thought that attitude had come from. Was it infuriating to you at the time? Like, were you ever insulted? Or did you have sort of the same even-handedness in thinking about it? How did you see it then? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, when I went to the studios with this little short story, Yentl the Yeshiva Boy, (laughs) my agent, when I found out, he never told me about that offer to do something with that story. Hmm. I asked, why wouldn't you tell me what was offered to me. Well, he says, you know, you just played a Jewish girl in Funny Girl. And so you don't want to play a Jewish boy, do you? Hmm. You know, that kind of thing. It was like, but that's not for you to tell me. Right. The story interested me because it was about gender inequality, that a woman couldn't study you know what that feeling is, You to be you. You became what you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I became what I wanted to be. But I don't want somebody telling me what I can't be. You know, we all know about your influence on the industry as a performer. But I wonder, how do you see your influence on the entertainment industry as a businesswoman? Mm. I, I don't think I do, really. How do you mean? It was only sort of expressions of... I just never thought about really the business aspect. I just thought about it from the control aspect. That is something that came up again and again and again in the book. I think the end of one chapter just said, 
you know, right. I have to I be have in to control. Be a director. That's right. The first time I got a contract, again, I wanted to be an actress, so it mm -hmm. didn't matter to me if I got a record contract to sing. My manager, Marty Ehrlichman, who became my manager when I was 19, mm -hmm. and you know, he brought Columbia Records down to see me, mm -hmm. and they wanted to sign me. I said to Marty, I don't care what I get paid. I, I just want to be able to control my work. Mm-hmm. What songs I sing? What's the cover of the album look like? At the time, what is that, 60 years ago, I think, they were suggesting I call my album Sweet and Saucy Streisand. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I wanted to control that. And I got that. You know, I was able to call my album the Barbara Streisand album because I said that's what it is. And so I was able to have that, you see? That's what was important to me. It's control. Control of my work. You say all this about control. I wonder, do you see this book as a form of control over your legacy? Yes. Like, like something like the <laughs> ultimate director's cut of your life. <laughs> Very well said. Very well put. Yeah, it is. I got one more question I want to yeah. ask you. There is this a 1991 interview. Yeah. On 60 Minutes, mm. I was watching it, re-watching it recently, and there's this moment in a conversation where you look back on your performance with Judy Garland on TV in 1963. And you're remembering how surprised you were that Judy's hands were shaking with nerves right. when she right. held your hand. And you said that you didn't understand her fear at the time, but right. in 91 at 48, you understood mm -hmm. Judy was afraid of falling out of public favor, of being forgotten, becoming obsolete. Like everybody's ready to say she's going downhill or her career is over or they want it to be over. Not the public, mind you. And you seem to be processing and understanding Judy's perspective and that fear at the time in that interview in 1991. But now you're 81 and your book doesn't have any of that anxiety. Really? You seem pleased with your life. Why do you think it took me so long to write it? 10 hmm. years, because I have that same anxiety. Hmm. You know, I, I do, I understand, I understand what she was shaking about. I didn't understand it when I was 21. Right. Her vulnerability, you know, I became like her in a sense. Vulner very well, I you mean you became vulnerable in that way over time over time, more vulnerable even than I was, yeah, you know, the fear of forgetting the words, not being able to sing till there was such a thing as teleprompters, hmm. the fear of letting down the audience, was I good enough, was my voice good enough was hmm. I just had to do concerts because I had you know I had to pay the rent right. I wonder though, like, you know, your book, you seem so pleased with your life. I wonder what shifted between 48 and 81. I'm trying to get some secrets, some advice, some what's <laughs> what's to come. Like what what change within you happened between between those two points in time that got you to the point where you feel this contentment and you were ready to look back in this way? Yeah. I wasn't ready for the longest time. I thought I had more to do. Hmm. But then I came to a point where I think 
what I did was enough. And then you say, you know, okay, let me just live my life. Let me see what that is, you know? Well, Ms. Streisand, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure to have you. And thank you. I really appreciate you. That was the legendary Barbara Streisand in conversation with It's Been a Minute host, Brittany Luce. I can open doors, take from the shelves all the books I've longed to hold. I can ask all the questions, the whys and the wheres as the mysteries of life unfold. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Each year, millions of people around the world die from drug-resistant infections as more bacteria gain the ability to fight the antibiotics we use against them. NPR's Regina Barber reports that the spread of so-called superbugs is leaving many children and babies especially vulnerable. Ramanan Lakshminarayan is a senior research scholar at Princeton University, and he has studied antimicrobial resistance for almost three decades. He says that in the last decade, the problem has sped way up. Over half a million infants die from bacterial infections globally each year. And in fact... This is one of the most important threats uh, for newborn survival and the only one that is growing. A study published in the Lancet Regional Health Southeast Asia last week analyzed 86 papers that examined antibiotic resistance in 11 different countries. What they found was that there was extremely high rates of drug-resistant infections in newborns. Dr. Phoebe Williams at the University of Sydney School of Medicine led the study. She says that babies and children don't have the same immune defenses as adults, which means they are more susceptible to potentially deadly infections like sepsis and meningitis. So children and babies are one of the populations that's most at risk of bacterial infections and therefore at most at risk of antibiotic resistance as, as resistance emerges. And as the available drugs' effectiveness have gone down, deaths have started to go way up. Dr. Williams says that in the Philippines... Their mortality rate in neonatal sepsis has gone from being about 20% 10 years ago, so one in five babies dying, to 75% um, in the last two years. And new treatments just aren't keeping up. In the last 20 years, there have been four new antibiotics for babies compared to 40 for adults. There's another problem in the Philippines, a shortage of healthcare workers. Dr. Williams says that many nurses leave the country to go work in Australia, creating a brain drain to higher-income countries. While working in the Philippines, Dr. Williams says she has seen one nurse taking care of up to 20 babies in one unit. And so once a multidrug-resistant bacteria gets into that unit, it spreads very quickly and can infect many, many of the babies. There is a much stronger class of antibiotics called carpapenems, but they're more expensive and they're not listed in the World Health Organization, or WHO's, antibiotic guidelines. Those guidelines were last updated back in 2013. Most of those recommendations that are in guidelines like those WHO ones are very, very outdated. The good news is, is that WHO is currently revising the guidelines and the United Nations General Assembly is going to discuss antibiotic resistance next year. Even though Lakshman Orion didn't work on this study, he wants people to know. What the study makes clear is that either we invest in new antibiotics and we do this really soon, or we take greater measures to protect newborns from infection. There is no third way, and we are failing on both these counts. But Dr. Williams hopes that this study will raise people's awareness on how these superbugs aren't just affecting people and babies in Southeast Asia. 
bugs don't respect borders, as we've seen with COVID-19. And so it's really something that we should, we should all be worried about. It's not just a problem for lower-income countries, she says, but for the whole world. Regina Barber, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Republican presidential candidates are gathering in Florida for their third primary debate tomorrow night. Former President Donald Trump is bowing out for the third time. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In the forecast, some showers around now. Tonight should be mainly dry, a lot colder, about 35 degrees for a low, still windy tonight. Tomorrow should be nice but brisk, only making it to the mid-40s with sunshine returning. Thursday, cloudy skies, the chance of rain, even some sleet Thursday morning, strong winds around for much of the week. Comedian Bethany Van Delft hosts the Moth Story Slam. It's coming up a week from today, Tuesday, November 14th at City Space. You too can tell a story based on the theme Give and Take or just come and enjoy the show. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Celtics and Bruins are both off the job tonight. Celtics play tomorrow. The Bruins play on Thursday. 63 degrees at 449. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. Investigators say a Texas prison inmate attacked a guard. Witnesses say in response, the guards beat him so badly he's now in a coma. What about the culture that promotes this type of incident, this type of action towards inmates? What about the culture? Is it too few staff for too many inmates? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A British surgeon with the International Committee of the Red Cross recently crossed into Gaza. NPR's Aya Batrawi spoke with him about what he has seen as hospitals overflow with people injured by Israeli airstrikes. And a warning, this report includes graphic descriptions of their injuries. Dr. Tom Podokar tells me he's seen a catastrophic situation since entering Gaza on October 27th, the scale of which he's never seen before. I've been to Gaza many, many times over the years. I've never seen a situation even remotely as bad as it is currently. The British plastic reconstructive and burn surgeon leads what the International Committee of the Red Cross says is a war surgery team in Gaza. A lot of the cases he's handling have been women and children with very complex injuries and burns. We're seeing just polytrauma, so multiple multiple injuries in the same patient, you know, legs, arms, chest, abdomen, head. 
uh, all complicated and a lot of them by burns on top of this. Just an unmanageable number of patients. An unmanageable number of patients. I asked him what that looks like. I think that the word to best describe it would just be overwhelming, to be honest. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza says more than 10,300 Palestinians have died from the war since October 7th, and 26,000 people have been wounded. It says among them are more than 4,200 children killed, nearly all from Israeli airstrikes and bombardment. Israel says it's targeting Hamas, which launched an attack on southern Israel that killed 1,400 people, according to Israeli officials. Some 240 people were taken hostage. And Israeli leaders say troops are aiming to rescue those hostages and eliminate Hamas. In Gaza, the death toll keeps climbing, with strikes on ambulances, hospitals, bread lines, UN-run shelters, and thousands of apartment buildings. Israel acknowledges many of these attacks and blames Hamas fighters for using tunnels under civilian infrastructure. The heads of 18 UN agencies say these places must be protected and have reiterated calls for a ceasefire. Palestinians say the majority of victims are civilians, and Podokar takes a minute to describe how complex even one of these cases is. I have a patient now who's on the table that I need to go and operate now. You know, he lost 20 members of his family. He's the only one left. He has friends here. He doesn't have any family here. He's a young man. He has 40% burns, of which half of them are deep burns. He has massive shrapnel wounds to the chest, to the foot, to the buttock. He's septic, so he's already got infection. You know, he's in a critical condition. Even giving him an anesthetic is extremely dangerous because of his general overall condition. But if we don't operate to to clean up some of these wounds, then, you know, the infection doesn't get controlled. You know, that's a very typical case. He also operated on a child who was under the rubble for two days. The health ministry in Gaza says nearly 1,400 children are missing under the rubble. A case of a child, again, lost all his family, pulled out of the rubble after two days with extensive burn injuries. He's slowly getting a little bit better. In another case, he had to tell the parents of a child with severe burns that their son wouldn't survive. And unfortunately, he died a couple of days later. You know, this is the reality of what's happening. And for many who may survive this war, their long-term prognosis isn't good either, he says. There's a lot of patients that will suffer significant long-term disability due to a combination of, you know, amputations, significant soft tissue injuries, delayed burn contractures. Only 17 out of Gaza's 35 hospitals are still operational. The Palestinian Health Ministry says the rest have been damaged by Israeli bombs or have run out of fuel for generators. Podokar has been working at Gaza's European hospital in Khan Yunis, one of the few still operational in southern Gaza that can receive some of the limited aid trickling in from Egypt. I asked the surgeon how he and his team are keeping safe even as the ICRC communicates with Israel and has helped in the release of four Israeli hostages from Gaza? Uh, I'm not sure we are. I mean, uh, you know, every single night there's bombardments. There were several explosions just outside the, the hospital last night before we left. Um, and again this morning. Despite this, the doctor says he's got no immediate plans to leave Gaza. Not at the moment, no, because... The, there's no one else getting in at the moment, and, you know, the needs are too great. Yeah, I need to go. Okay. Yeah. Bye. The young man with no surviving family and burns across nearly half his body was on the operating table waiting for Dr. Podokar. Ayo Batrawi, NPR News. 
After months of temperatures above 100 degrees, it is finally cooling off in Arizona's Sonoran Desert. NPR's Brian Mann took advantage of the milder weather to trek in the superstition wilderness in the high mountains east of Phoenix. He found a hidden forest and sent in this audio postcard. I'm setting off just about a half hour before sunrise and it is kind of chilly out here. This is amazing. It's a desert and already there's enough glow to the sky that I can see the cactus spreading every direction and the big mesas of rock. But down here, it's, uh, it's actually a little bit, uh, a little bit cold. The first part of my hike, I startle a herd of mule deer. They scatter among the saguaro, their white tails flashing. In the dim light, there are birds everywhere. I'm watching the sunrise as I climb and it just keeps changing everything. Vast cliffs will catch the sun and start to glow. Bright red berries on the bushes and the sweeps of really lush, buttery yellow flowers. Soon I come to a stage of high rock that looks out across a river valley to distant mountains. They're so craggy, so knife-edged, they look unreal. I think if you saw this painting, you know, in a museum, you would think that some early painter of the West had just let their imagination go crazy. I hike on, dropping down steep trails into the valley, where I can see a vein of bright green forest surrounded by desert. Hour by hour, the heat rises. The sun dominates everything now. There's not much shade at all. I'm carrying crazy amounts of water. Even now, on a relatively mild day, it's essential. I'm walking over river stones. There's a dry riverbed, kind of a forest world down here. In the deepest part of the valley, where water sometimes flows, the forest is lush with deep pools of shade. As far as I can tell, I have this vast valley to myself. For a long time, I just sit under a shimmering tree. There's no cell service, no voices, just silence. It's hot in the high 90s when I finally start for home. The trail smells of dust and sage and my own sweat as I climb. I've made it back up onto one of the high buttresses of rock that sits above this valley. It's just empty. The solitude is kind of vast. It's really magnificent here. Brian Mann, NPR News in the Superstition Wilderness. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere November 10th. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from listeners like you, 
who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Still pretty mild out there. Should have sporadic rain this evening. Tonight, though, should be mainly dry, a lot cooler, about 35 degrees for a low tonight, still on the windy side. Tomorrow should be a nice day, but brisk, only making it to the mid-40s with sunshine returning. Then for Thursday, cloudy skies, chance of rain, maybe even some sleet in the morning. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. One month after Hamas militant surprise attack, Israel has one major goal. To deal with the Hamas issue and to take them down. Savages like that, there is only one solution for them. More from a former director of intelligence for Israel's spy agency, Mossad. Coming up on this Tuesday, November 7th, this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the federal government is said to run out of money in 10 days, though House Speaker Mike Johnson is at least sounding optimistic. We have some very constructive, I think very positive discussions going on. Our colleagues in the Senate, they understand we've got to get the job done. More on what happens next to prevent a government shutdown. Also, a new report from the CDC shows that rates of congenital syphilis have skyrocketed in recent years. Meanwhile, there's an ongoing shortage of the medication used to treat the disease. These stories, the forecast and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Today is Election Day, and as NPR's Hansi Luang reports, in more than a dozen states, voters could wait till the last minute to register and cast a ballot. If you're eligible to cast a ballot but haven't registered yet, you may still have a chance to make your voice heard at the polls. On the East Coast, same-day voter registration is available in Connecticut, Maine, Maryland, New Hampshire, and Virginia. In the Midwest, eligible voters can still register in Iowa, Michigan, and Minnesota. Western states with same-day registration include California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, New Mexico, Washington, and Wyoming. Anyone interested in registering to vote at the last minute will need to make sure they bring to their polling place documents that prove they're a resident, like a driver's license, another ID card, or in some states, a paycheck or utility bill. Anzi Luang, NPR News. Despite the fact this is an off-year election, political observers will be paying close attention to some key results tonight, including Virginia, a possible harbinger of things to come. Analysts are closely watching where the political balance of the state legislature could shift. Kentucky's governor's race will also be in the spotlight, along with the issue of abortion rights in Ohio. A ballot amendment there is a major flashpoint in the battle for abortion access, following the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Ohio voters are determining whether to pass a state constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to an abortion. The Justice Department's special counsel leading the Hunter Biden investigation is testifying behind closed doors today before the House Judiciary Committee. David Weiss is rejecting Republicans' claims of political interference in the case. More from NPR's Ryan Lucas. Special counsel David Weiss is appearing voluntarily before the House Judiciary Committee for a transcribed interview. In his opening statement to the panel, a copy of which was released by the Justice Department, 
Weiss says he is, to his knowledge, the first special counsel to testify before submitting a final report from his probe. Weiss says he's doing so to respond to questions raised about his investigation. He says he is the decision maker in the case and that at no time was he blocked for pursuing charges or taking steps he thought necessary. That rebuts claims to the contrary made by House Republicans. Weiss also says he's made decisions based on facts and the law and that political considerations have played no part in his decision making. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The nation's highest court appears likely to preserve a law that would prohibit people under domestic violence restraining orders from possessing a gun. Justices during arguments suggesting they'll likely reverse a lower court ruling that would seek to strike down the 1994 law banning possession of firearms by those under court order to stay away from partners or spouses. The appeal involved a Texas man accused of threatening to shoot his girlfriend. Stocks closed modestly higher for a second straight day as investors looked at some earnings results. The Dow was up 56 points. The Nasdaq rose 121 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Voters in Boston today are deciding the future of the city council, multiple district seats, and at-large seats up for grabs. Earlier today, WBUR Simone Rio spoke with voters in Dorchester. One key race is to see who replaces outgoing District 3 councillor Frank Baker, the more progressive Joel Richards, or the more moderate John Fitzgerald. Savin Hill voter and former city official Buddy Christopher says Fitzgerald is his choice for what he calls a more stable council. What I'm really looking for is stability. Um, I feel like that uh, the council in, in recent times has acted outside of its preview. But Christopher says voters in Savin Hill have become more progressive in recent years, and that could benefit Richards. Richards trailed Fitzgerald in fundraising by a three-to-one margin, but his supporters say it's time for a new kind of leadership in Dorchester and South Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Elections are also being held today in Revere, Quincy, Waltham, Melrose, and several other communities. The archery hunting hunting season for deer at Blue Hills Reservation kicks off this week. It's part of an effort to cull the area's deer population. Peter Church is director of Forest Stewardship that oversees the program. He says hikers who are visiting the Blue Hills area should use caution. It's important in any hunting season anywhere on DCR properties to just be aware of uh, your surroundings, make sure that you have brightly colored clothes, make sure your dogs are on leashes, but the two activities are compatible. Hunting deer will be allowed through November 22nd. Archers are only allowed to hunt Monday through Thursday. The state treasurer is warning about a recent uptick in scam calls claiming to be from her office. Treasurer Deborah Goldberg says the callers say people owe money to the treasury to avoid being arrested for drug possession. Goldberg says her office does not call people to collect money. In the forecast, down around the mid-30s overnight tonight, some blustery winds. Tomorrow, still windy, a lot chillier, only in the mid-40s tops, despite sunny skies tomorrow. Could see some sleet early on Thursday, with clouds and showers during the day stuck in the mid-40s. 62 degrees in the Boston area at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Total Wine & More, where customers can find gifts for people on their list. From a Cabernet to single-barrel bourbon, TotalWine.com. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Available to adults 21 or older. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tel Aviv. It can feel a little surreal to wander this city these days. On the one hand, people are out, riding bikes, pushing baby strollers, swimming. 
in the sun. On the other hand, you sit down at a restaurant, start to order, and air raid sirens go off. You can hear the Iron Dome, Israel's missile defense system, kick in and shoot the incoming from the sky. Everyone waits a minute for the shrapnel to fall, and then they wander back outside to cafe tables and resume ordering wine and salads. This disconnect, people trying to carry on with normal life in what are not remotely normal times, this is the new reality here in Israel, one month after Hamas attacked on October 7th. For the officials charged with protecting Israel, a reckoning is underway. How did they fail to see the attacks coming? And does this moment still feel dangerous? Not dangerous. Disappointment. Trauma. Shock. Embarrassment. I can find a lot of vocabulary to describe what we feel right now. But not dangerous. We are so strong. This is Zohar Palti, former director of intelligence of the spy agency, the Mossad. He invited us to his home in Tel Aviv the other day to talk about how this war started and how it ends. Talk to me about where we are in the cycle of where this goes next in Gaza. Israel's military says they have now encircled Gaza City. It's a city under siege that they are hitting hundreds of targets, Hamas targets every day in Gaza. Where are we in this thing? First of all, it's too soon a bit to know. And I will tell you why. Because first of all, we have 242 hostages in Gaza. Something like 30 children under the age of 16. We have children over there that saw their parents massacre in front of their eyes. And right now they're in dark tunnel in Gaza, holding by the Hamas without parents. We have Holocaust survivors. We have women, children, old people, soldiers. We have everything over there. And we have a mission to bring them back. We have dozens of thousands of people right now. They just left their houses near the border with Gaza. So we need to restore, first of all, deterrence and to bring back sense of security, not only security, only the sense of security that people will go back to their houses and will build them back. So it's only the beginning of the campaign over here right now of this war. And we'll have beginning to of the campaign. It's only the beginning. And you just elevated the hostages above any other priority. Um, in terms of what happens next in Gaza, which interests me because I have heard some others saying, as awful as it is that these hostages are there, they are in danger, there's a bigger priority and it's and it's protecting Israel from this ever happening again. So it's true. It goes simultaneously. And everybody is asking me regarding this issue. And I'm saying, guys, I don't, I, I'm not familiar in the last 40 years that I was dealing with security and operation on all these issues Meaning, there is no formula for that. I'm not sure that somebody has a solution for that. Uh, I mean, that he know how to solve this issue right now. So we have to right the now... The hostage issue, you mean? It's not. It's the hostage. And the other question that you asked me regarding the priority and the, to, let's, let's say, to deal with the Hamas issue and to take them down. What's come first? This or not? As a serious people, we have to figure out how to do it simultaneously. And if we will understand that we are not able to do it, it seems to me that from a moral point of view, as a free country, first and foremost, we have the obligation to our civilians. But then again, we'll have to take Hamas down because we can't live with a threat like that. If the goal is to take down 
Hamas, to crush Hamas. My question is, is that actually possible? You will know as well as I what the U.S. faced after 9-11 when the goal was to crush al-Qaeda and all of the questions that raised, are you are you creating as many terrorists as you're killing? Not that I'm, I think it's apple and origins to compare the campaign that you have done all over the world regarding so? to take, because it's a lot large over here, it's a local. It's tough. It's a different difficulty. It's a different environment. Meaning it's apple and oranges. What? But even if you kill every single fighter, Hamas fighter in Gaza, the sentiment doesn't go away, the idea. So the issue is not to kill each one of them. The issue is very much, and you gave, I think, a great uh, an example over here. Guys, you won the war, the war on terrorism. You, in the last decades, kill all the leadership of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Daesh. How you define winning over here? When you don't have a September 11 anymore, thank God. Our winning will be that Hamas is, won't be able to carry on a vicious attack like that again ever on civilians in the morning. This is one. And another, let's say, two definition of victory is to bring the Israeli back home. And more than that, that we will build all the villages and all those uh, kibbutzim back, and all the people will go back to live there in better houses, in better environment, and they will, they will feel safe. That's what I call victory. All the people meaning Palestinians. Not Palestinians. I don't care about the Palestinians. I take care about the Israelis right now. That are right what now. What happens neglect. to them now? <laughs> they're all over Israel. They're living in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem because they don't have houses. We have thousands of Israelis that evacuate their homes right now because of this vicious attack. So with all due respect, my first priority is to the Israeli one. Later on, we will deal also with the poor Palestinians over there. But what do you say to the Palestinian whose family home goes back generations and that's where it is? It's in Gaza. They choose Hamas. There is consequences for that. There hasn't been an election in many years. Is it clear they're choosing Hamas? Probably, yes. We saw the polls. We saw the public opinion. And by the way, with all due respect, right now after this vicious attack, my sympathy first and foremost is with the Israelis because I'm a patriot to Israel. Secondly, I will talk to them about when we'll solve the issues of the hostages in Gaza and where we'll bring back our people back to their homes and we'll build them, then I'm willing to consider to think about others. But my first priority is to our interest. Am I correct in thinking that much of Hamas's leadership is hanging out in Doha, in Qatar? No, not all of them. But a lot some. Of, sure. If the goal is to crush them, why are they hanging out and publicly enough that I know about it as an American journalist? Why hasn't Israel done something about that? You can't do everything simultaneously. As we say They've in, been there in a while. the region, we're not going anywhere. One day we'll reach that as well. Zohra Palti was head of the intelligence directorate at Mossad, and we've been speaking with him at his kitchen table here in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Thank you so much. And he's one of many voices, Israeli, Palestinian, and from the wider region, that we're hearing from this week as Mary Louise and her team continue their reporting from the Middle East. 
Florida is the place to be in Republican politics tomorrow night as their presidential candidates gather for their third primary debate. But the biggest name in GOP politics won't be there again, Donald Trump. Instead, once again, the former president is holding a competing rally just miles away from the site of the debate. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro joins us now for a preview of the drama. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so Trump is missing yet another debate. Tell us about these rally plans. Yeah, I mean, he's skipping again. He's rallying in nearby Hialeah, Florida, which is a heavily Latino area. He's still refusing to sign a pledge to back whomever the GOP nominee is selected to be, which was one of the requirements by the Republican National Committee to be able to appear on the debate stage. But Trump and his team really feel emboldened by this strategy. They see no downside to it. He continues to have huge leads in the polls, despite or maybe because of these trials and scores of charges that he's facing. Plus, people in Trump world see this series of New York Times Siena battleground polls that were released over the weekend showing Trump leading President Biden in multiple swing states as a huge boost to them. You know, Republicans running against Trump have been trying to argue with lots of merit that Trump is unelectable given how toxic his brand has become with independents and how poorly Trump-backed candidates have fared in recent elections. But those polls really have undercut that idea. You know, of course, a general election's a year away and yeah. uh, they're hasn't even been any real campaigning yet between him and Biden. I know. Well, well, let's talk about the debate stage. I mean, there are some changes to the lineup of people who we're going to be seeing up there, right? Only five candidates made the debate this time. Really, the stage has been kind of winnowed down. You have Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, the former tech CEO, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Okay. Those are the people on the stage. What are the issues going to be tomorrow night? Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the debate's co-sponsors is the Republican Jewish Coalition, and there hasn't been a debate since the Israel-Hamas war. And I'd expect that to be at least a big part of the focus, which really uh, will allow the candidates to tee off on President Biden's response. You know, Biden's gotten low approval ratings for his handling, despite an also, because of his initial strong support for Israel, it's really splintered key portions of the Democratic base. And Republicans would love to highlight their staunchly, for the most part, pro-Israel stances. Any particular candidate you think that benefits? Well, I'll look directly at Nikki Haley. You know, this is in her wheelhouse as a former Trump ambassador to the United Nations. Certainly, it's a less comfortable topic for DeSantis, who's really struggled in talking about foreign policy and trying to walk this line between the sort of Trump-style populism and the traditional GOP hawkishness that really says that U.S. intervention in the world is necessary. You know, this is going to be a debate that's a real test for DeSantis. Another good performance from Haley and a flat one from DeSantis. And, you know, and Haley could really start to secure her place as the principal Trump alternative. At least that's what she hopes. And there are still formidable opponents on this stage. You know, Christie's a strong debater. Ramaswamy, we've seen, can command the stage, even if it's just by talking a lot. Uh, Tim Scott's campaign put out a memo this week outlining his strategy, needing to carve out a lane between DeSantis and Haley. He plans to tie it back to Trump with this memo asking how can either candidate, DeSantis or Haley, present a contrast with Donald Trump when he made each of their political careers. We'll see if that sticks. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you so much, Domenico. Hey, you're welcome. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The office sharing company WeWork has filed for bankruptcy. What happened to what was at one time the hottest startup in Silicon Valley? Coming up on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales, committed to going beyond the classroom by helping students develop networks and experience in fields like healthcare, business, and cybersecurity. And Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at clarkliving.com. Update on Wall Street today. The Dow gained almost two-tenths of a percent. S&P rose nearly three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq grew by almost a full percent. The Nasdaq and S&P have now had their longest winning streak since November of 2021. Rhode Island-based pharmacy CVS is reversing its plans, at least for now, to sell Omnicare. In 2015, CVS bought the company that provides pharmacy services for long-term care facilities. It bought it for more than $12 billion. CVS had said last year that Omnicare was no longer a strategic asset, but a CVS spokesperson says a sale won't likely happen in the near term. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Walden Local Meat, nourishing communities with sustainable meat and seafood from local farmers, delivered right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. Windy and cold tonight, about 35 degrees. Tomorrow, windy once again. Sunshine, temperatures in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. It's the latest sign of the country's losing battle against many common sexually transmitted infections. The number of babies born with syphilis has increased tenfold over the last decade in the U.S. This sobering data point comes from a new report by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. NPR's Will Stone has more. The upsurge in congenital syphilis is disturbing, but not surprising for those in public health and STI prevention, like Dr. John Vancheri, who's at LSU Health Shreveport. It's sort of like that canary in a coal mine uh, situation. You see congenital syphilis when there is a lot of syphilis in communities. In the U.S., syphilis rates haven't been this high since the 60s. More than two-thirds of Americans now live in a county with a high prevalence of syphilis among reproductive-age women. Many new cases of congenital syphilis are concentrated in the South. Vancheri says they evaluate two to three babies a week in northwest Louisiana. Many of them do okay. But we do see babies that are sick with syphilis who require 10 to 14 days of treatment in the hospital. Uh, We do see moms whose babies deliver prematurely. Congenital syphilis can cause health problems like deformed bones, developmental delays, blindness, and deafness. And of the more than 3,700 cases last year, about 230 resulted in stillbirth. The situation is, is very serious. Dr. Laura Bachman is chief medical officer for the CDC's Division of STD Prevention. We've seen these increases over time now, but it is apparent we need to do things differently. 
The CDC is recommending steps like expanding testing in emergency departments and urgent care, and in some cases, starting treatment right away if a rapid test is positive. The new numbers not only speak to the wider STD epidemic, but a breakdown in maternal care. Many cases were among people who did not have prenatal care. Dr. Natasha Bagdasarian is the chief medical executive for the state of Michigan. She says they often find there's no OBGYN or midwife in the picture. What I'm seeing is a lot of missed opportunities for testing. As with other STIs, syphilis disproportionately affects gay and bisexual men. But Bagdasarian says there's been a clear shift in her state. Now 20 percent of syphilis cases are in women. There simply wasn't that awareness among young heterosexual women of childbearing age. Lack of testing isn't the only problem. More than half of congenital syphilis cases were among people who had a positive test, but never received adequate or timely treatment. Dr. Edward Hook is at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Of all STIs, syphilis is the one that demonstrates just how poor our national response is to sexual health challenges. Only complicating matters, an ongoing shortage of the antibiotic used to treat syphilis during pregnancy. That's not a factor in these new numbers because the shortage started later, but the supply isn't expected to be fully restored until next year. Will Stone, NPR News. At the Supreme Court today, the justices seemed inclined to uphold a federal law that bans gun possession for anyone covered by a domestic violence court order. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. From the get-go today, the justices were wrestling with the consequences of their sweeping decision last year, declaring that in order for a gun law to be constitutional, it has to be analogous to a law that existed at the nation's founding in the late 1700s. The question today was how precise does that analog have to be? Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, representing the government, contended that under the court's most recent decisions, Congress may still disarm those who are not law-abiding responsible citizens. She said that there's no historical evidence that the Second Amendment right to bear arms was originally understood to prevent legislatures from disarming dangerous individuals. But as several justices noted, people do all kinds of irresponsible things, driving over the speed limit, putting the trash out on the wrong day, but nobody would suggest that they lose their constitutional rights for that. Pressed by Chief Justice Roberts, Prelogger agreed that the word responsible is something of a placeholder for dangerousness. Justice Kavanaugh. No daylight at all then between not responsible and dangerous. Yes, our understanding of what history and tradition reflect is those whose possession of firearms presents an unusual danger beyond the ordinary citizen. Most of the court's conservatives seem to accept that proposition, with only Justices Alito and Thomas remaining skeptical. Thomas was the author of last year's broad decision, a decision so sweeping and unspecific that the lower courts have interpreted it in dramatically different ways as they forage for historical analogs. The court's liberals remained largely silent during the first half of the argument, except for Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who clearly would have liked to revisit the court's 2022 decision. What's the point of going to the founding era? Challenging the federal law in this case is defendant Zach. Jackie Rahimi, a Texas judge granted a domestic violence court order that stripped Rahimi of his license to carry a gun after he assaulted his girlfriend in a parking
parking lot and then fired a gun at a bystander who saw the assault. After he continued firing guns repeatedly in public, police searched his residence, finding multiple guns, magazines, and ammunition. He was sentenced to six years for violating the federal law banning guns for those under domestic violence court orders, but the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, citing the Supreme Court's 2022 gun decision, ruled that the federal law deprived Rahimi of his Second Amendment right to bear arms. Today, Rahimi's lawyer, federal public defender Matthew Wright, struggled to defend that decision, telling the justices there is no law from the founding era that is analogous to this one. There's no ban. There's no history of bans. They don't exist. Justice Kagan asked if the presence of a similar ban at the time of the founding is essential after the court's decision last year in the Bruin case. If we don't find that similar ban, we say that the government has no right to do anything. That's largely what Bruin says. Lawyer Wright also maintained that those accused of domestic violence have few protections in court prior to being slapped with a ban on guns. Justice Barrett wasn't buying that. She did submit a sworn affidavit giving quite a lot of detail about the various threats, right? So it's not like he just showed up and the judge said, credible finding of violence. Chief Justice Roberts was even more direct. You don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, the I moment. mean, someone who's shooting, uh, you know, at people, that's a good start. So, <laughs> that's fair. Justice Kagan followed up. Do you think that the Congress can disarm people who are mentally ill, who have been committed to mental institutions? So I think maybe is the answer to this. I'll tell you the honest truth, Mr. Wright. I feel like you're running away from your argument, Um, you know, because the implications of your argument are just so untenable that you have to say, no, that's not really my argument. Indeed, the court's decision in the Rahimi case will have ripple effects. It may make lower courts more hesitant to strike down laws aimed at preventing dangerous people from having guns. But as several justices observed today, this is the easy case. The harder ones lie ahead, among them federal and state laws that bar convicted felons, including those convicted of nonviolent crimes, from having guns. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a longtime supporter of Palestinians, Missouri Congressman Cori Bush's recent criticism of Israel is exposing divisions among Democrats in her district. And later, Wilco lead singer Jeff Tweedy talks about his new memoir. This is WBUR. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy, pretty windy, chilly, about 35 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, only making it to the mid-40s. Sunshine, gusty winds once again could have gusts up to about 32 miles an hour. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.gov. 
I'm Peter O'Dowd. Five years after the campfire devastated the town of Paradise, California, young people are healing by giving back. The fire was definitely a speed bump in my life, but after the fire, it like had lots of changes all for the better. We'll check on their recovery. That's next time on Here and Now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. It's been one month since Hamas-backed militants attacked southern Israel, and today Israeli citizens marked a day of mourning organized by the relatives of people who died on October 7th. NPR's Samantha Balaban reports from Tel Aviv. It began with a minute of silence and ceremonies across the country. The main event in downtown Tel Aviv included a tribute by musician Gali Atari. Who performed an Israeli song called, in English, I Have No Other Country. The names of the dead were broadcast on a screen behind the stage while family and friends honored their loved ones with speeches. Members of the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra closed out the somber and emotional ceremony with the national anthem, Hatikva, or The Hope. In the month since the October 7th attacks, more than 1,400 people in Israel and more than 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed. Samantha Balaban, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The trial of the man accused of killing rapper Tupac Shakur will begin next year, as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports. Dwayne Davis has long admitted he was in the car with the man he says shot Tupac Shakur in 1996 near the Las Vegas Strip. He maintains the shooter was his nephew, Orlando Anderson. Anderson died in a separate gang-related incident in 1998. Prosecutors say Davis organized the crime that killed Shakur. In September, a grand jury in Nevada indicted him with charges of murder and using a deadly weapon. Davis has pleaded not guilty. He's being held without bond in a county jail. Prosecutors say they will not seek the death penalty. One of his public defenders tells NPR they plan to file a motion for Davis to be released on bail until the trial begins. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You are listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts will soon establish a wait list for emergency shelter space for families. State officials say shelters are likely to reach capacity by Thursday. The state's emergency assistant director, General Scott Rice, says the state is trying to provide families on the wait list with resources. Family welcome centers in Alston and Quincy will continue to offer services, including providing hot meals, diapers, warm clothes, masks, and hygiene kits. Working with families on a case-by-case basis to determine safe housing alternatives. The state will partner with the nonprofit United Way to provide short-term accommodations to families who can't get shelter through the state system. More than 50,000 residents have already cast ballots in today's Boston municipal elections. That's 12 percent turnout so far. Voters are set to replace at least four city councilors. Standing outside her District 6 voting precinct in Jamaica Plain, Amy Perlman says she cast her ballot for progressive labor attorney Ben Weber. Perlman says she likes that he's a parent with children in the Boston public school system and is endorsed by a labor union. I'm a social worker, so I think really in terms of workers' rights, schools are big for me. Those are the ones that were really sticking out to me was really SEIU and then thinking about the BPS piece. Weber is running against the more moderate William King for the seat held by Councillor Kendra Lara. Voters are also heading to the polls in communities including Revere, Quincy, Springfield and Gloucester. 
Kamala Harris is heading to Boston. The vice president is set to fly into Logan Airport tomorrow night. She will take part in an education panel about local apprenticeship programs on Thursday. According to her office, the visit's part of a nationwide tour by the vice president centered on higher education issues. It's 534. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org and Boston Lyric Opera with La Cenerentola, Cinderella, a new BLO production set in modern-day Boston, November 8th through 12th at the Emerson Cutler Majestic Theater. Overnight tonight, should be cold, down around 33, 34 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny, windy, chilly, only about 46 tops. Then Thursday should stay in the mid-40s with a wintry mix of sleet and rain early in the day, followed by just a lot of clouds. 62 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The federal government is set to run out of funds in just 10 days. That means there isn't enough time to pass full-year spending bills. So Congress is back to debating short-term options to avoid a shutdown. Here's House Speaker Mike Johnson from earlier today. I'm not going to uh, show you all the cards right now. We have some very constructive, and I think very positive discussions going on. I think it, it should be palatable to our, our colleagues in the Senate because they understand we've got to get the, the job done. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel is on Capitol Hill following all of this and joins us now. Hey, Eric. Hey there. I mean, how many times do we keep on having this conversation? (laughs) Ten days doesn't seem like very much time to come up with a plan to avoid a government shutdown. Are lawmakers even close to a deal at this point? I mean... No. (laughs) I spent the morning bopping around the basement of the Capitol building. I was trying to talk to House Republicans as they left a meeting where they were supposed to sort this out. And basically, well, they haven't. Uh What I heard from folks was they have a lot of different ideas about what they're hoping to do, but not a lot of consensus about which of those ideas they'll pursue. But, you know, I will say the mood seems to be a lot better than when they were fighting and trying to pick a speaker. It's just that a lot of the fault lines that were there then among House Republicans are still basically the same. Okay, so what are some of the options that House Republicans are considering right now? Well, there's the eternal option, this so-called clean bill, and that would just be extending current funding levels for a little while. Johnson has suggested through... January 15th. But that would really upset the hardline Republicans, including members of the Freedom Caucus. Then there's the idea of a laddered bill. It's essentially this rolling deadlines for different agencies that could shut down just parts of the federal government. Oh, my God. And that approach would allow the GOP to use the threat of those mini shutdowns to (laughs) extract political concessions over and over. And then there's what seems most likely at this point, which is policy concessions on the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, is that what Senate Republicans also want to see? Border policy changes? Yeah, that's that's right. The Senate is, of course, under Democratic control, but they're going to need 60 votes to pass the bill through the chamber. Mm -hmm. And that means they need the support of some Republicans And here's Senate Minority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell of Kentucky a little earlier this afternoon. Border security needs to be a part of this package if it's going to move out of the Senate. 
I will say, though, that House Republicans and Senate Republicans may not actually agree on what border security policy changes they want to see and what would be enough of a concession to, you know, keep the government open. Right. Okay. well, what about the Democrats? Where are they on all of this? So last night in the House, I talked to Marcy Kaptur. She's an Ohio Democrat. She serves on the Appropriations Committee. And she's happy to see House Republicans at least working on a plan after spending three plus weeks trying to pick a new leader. At least there's some movement. And for the sake of the country, let them get these horses in the corral. As far as Senate Democrats go, they are, of course, not enthused about the Republican border policy ideas. So that's got to get sorted out. But, you know, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the top Democrat, said all the leaders are talking and he's hopeful that they can get a plan together. Hopeful. All right. That's, I guess, reassuring. So what's the process going forward? Look, in order to keep the government open, they need to vote on a plan. That's both chambers, and it needs to get signed by a pres- on by the president. But in order to vote on a plan, they need to agree on one. And right now, there aren't even really clear plans to agree on. So lots of steps left and not lots of time left to work on them. Yay. That is NPR's Eric McDaniel joining us from Capitol Hill. Thank you so much, Eric. Talk to you soon. The office-sharing company WeWork has filed for bankruptcy. It was once the hottest startup in Silicon Valley, but it ran out of cash. And then the pandemic had a lot of people working from home. NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen joins us now. Hey there. Hey. So, Bobby, help us understand here. How did WeWork go from this super popular, buzzy startup to being, well, it sounds like flat broke? Yeah, well, WeWork's former CEO, Adam Newman, was this long-haired, eccentric entrepreneur who exuded confidence and charmed investors around the world. He was pitching WeWork just as startups like Airbnb and Uber were rising, and he saw WeWork fitting into the same sharing economy boom. And it became this $47 billion company on a simple idea, right? Make office spaces feel chic and trendy and rent them out by the month or by the day, and then try to foster some kind of community around free beer and ping pong tables, right? (laughs) Right. Um, I actually used to work from a, a WeWork in San Francisco with panoramic views of the Bay Area and cold brew coffee on tap. Look, it was nice, but the company simply opened too many places to get free coffee around the world. Um, WeWork was taking out these 15-year leases, but had no idea how it would fill up the space, even just a year or two out. Eventually, Adam Newman, his grandiose plans fell apart. The company laid off thousands. It attempted to reinvent, and it just wasn't able to. Okay, but why was that? Why couldn't WeWork turn itself around? Yeah, well, in 2021, the company brought in new leadership with traditional real estate executives running the company. But by then, it had just entered too many office contracts around the world, and many were empty. As debt was piling up, it was running out of cash. SoftBank, the Japanese telecom conglomerate, was WeWork's biggest investor and bailed WeWork out. But WeWork became, you know, so huge during this era of easy money when venture capitalists financed all kinds of unproven young companies. And as that started to change and interest rates started to rise, it became more expensive to borrow and WeWork just kept burning cash. And then the pandemic really hurt the company. It was a terrible time to have taken out hundreds of office leases. Still, I talked to NYU finance professor Oswat Demodrin, and he told me WeWork's collapse was mostly a self-inflicted wound. WeWork claimed to have reinvented the business without ever reinventing it. That was the vanity that led it to become as big as it was. 
And to me, WeWork will be exhibit one and what happens when arrogance kind of rises to the top and lets you believe that the rules don't apply to you. That is a pretty damning assessment there. Bobby, here's the question I have about all of this, right? The way that we work and the places that we work has changed so much. So I wonder if you can tell us, for you, what does WeWork's bankruptcy tell us about the overall state of the office sharing business right now? Yeah, well, WeWork's bankruptcy filing, um, you know, says it's planning to offload about 70 leases, but it has more than 700 locations around the world. And most of them are going to be staying open during this bankruptcy reorganization. So we're looking at a smaller WeWork company. But to answer your question, since the pandemic, overall demand for office sharing or what's known as co-working spaces has really grown. Some companies are reducing the sizes of their offices and having employees report from these co-working spaces. You know, workers are closer to home. They could have more flexibility. But look, it is not for everyone. I think WeWork's bankruptcy has shown that there are a finite number of people who will use co-working spaces. But Real estate experts say when co-working businesses actually are run well, look, it can be a viable business. And maybe this new WeWork that will emerge will be more viable. We shall see. We will. NPR's Bobby Allen, thank you. Hey, thanks so much. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush is one of the leading critics of Israel's military actions in Gaza. That stance is igniting sharp criticism and dividing her constituents as she seeks re-election next year. St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum has more. Cassandra Butler, a political scientist who lives in Ferguson, thinks Cori Bush's criticism of Israel comes from what Butler argues are similar situations faced by Palestinians and African-Americans. And so African-Americans as oppressed people and Palestinians as oppressed people, we found that we had that, that, we had that kinship there. Before getting elected to the House in 2020, Bush participated in the protest movement in Ferguson, sparked by a police officer shooting and killing 18-year-old Michael Brown. She's long argued there are commonalities between the Black experience in the U.S. and the Palestinian experience. Bush's stances on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have come into sharper focus recently, especially after Hamas killed about 1,400 Israelis and took more than 200 people hostage last month. She's the lead sponsor of a House resolution urging President Biden to push for a ceasefire. And she's decried the Israeli military assault, which Palestinian health officials say has killed more than 10,000 people. In a tweet, she said that she can't be silent about what she labels as, quote, Israel's ethnic cleansing campaign. That characterization is rejected by most of her fellow Democrats, 
And the Israeli government says its aim is to destroy Hamas so it can never attack again, but that the group places fighters and bases among civilians. Biden's administration has said a ceasefire would give Hamas time to regroup and instead has urged the use of humanitarian pauses to allow aid and people to safely move within Gaza. Bush says her advocacy for a ceasefire is about saving lives. You don't have to be a pastor or an activist or a congressperson to understand the value of human life. But Bush's statements have sparked criticism and backlash in Missouri's first congressional district, which takes in the city of St. Louis and its surrounding suburbs. Jewish organizations have denounced her use of the term ethnic cleansing and have said her words contribute toward, quote, the flames of anti-Semitism. One of her constituents, Mark Jacob, has relatives in Israel, and he says he's outraged by Bush's comments. I think what I would say to those who have traditionally supported Cord Bush is that I believe you probably supported her because you believed that she held moral positions. And I think what we've seen in the last month is that that's starting to fall apart. Bush won re-election in 2022 comfortably, fending off a primary challenge by a landslide. But last week, St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell made this startling announcement. He was withdrawing as a candidate for the U.S. Senate and instead running against Bush. While Bell stressed that his entry into the race went beyond Bush's statements on Israel, they did play a role. And I think those comments show a lack of understanding of the nuance and complexities of an issue that is literally hundreds of years in the making. Not all of Bush's constituents see things the same way. St. Louis resident Omar Badrin is Palestinian-American. He says it's meaningful to him that there's a high-level leader like Bush who is willing to stand up for the Palestinians even when it's hard. For her to have the moral backbone to do that tells me that, you know, she uh, has the courage to stand up for what's right. There's also a lot of time before voters actually head to the polls throughout Missouri's 1st District, and other issues may be more top of mind by then. For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. You're listening to All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Celtics and Bruins are both off the job tonight. The Celtics play tomorrow. The Bruins play on Thursday. Still pretty mild out there. 61 degrees. Tonight should be mainly dry and a lot colder. 35 degrees for a low tonight on the windy side. Tomorrow should be nice but chilly, only making it to the mid-40s with sunshine back again tomorrow. Then for Thursday, cloudy skies, the chance of rain, even some sleet, strong winds through much of the week. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Greener You, designing and implementing building energy systems for a fossil-free future. Learn more at GreenerU.com. Maybe you're sitting in your car in traffic right now. Or your commute on the T is taking forever. And you're wondering... How do I start biking around Boston? Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. Make sure you have the right gear. You'll want a waterproof jacket for those unexpected storms we're famous for. And as the weather gets colder, layer up with gloves and a thin hat. 
no matter what, don't forget a helmet. There's a lot of bike lanes and paths all over the Boston area, like along the Charles River or the Minuteman Bikeway or the Southwest Corridor Park. However, there are some places where you're probably going to have to ride in street traffic. And oh yeah, you are still supposed to follow the rules of the road. To get more tips like this about navigating Boston, head to wbur.org slash fieldguide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Now it's time for another conversation from our series about how we find meaning. It's called Enlighten Me. And for this one, our colleague Rachel Martin spoke with Wilco singer Jeff Tweedy. This conversation is for anyone who has heard a song and felt less alone because of it. And I'm betting that's most of us, right? For Jeff Tweedy, his new book, World Within a Song, is a chance to pay tribute to the music that inspired him and kept him company. Songs that made a home in his head and his heart and never left. I think in song shapes. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, I think it's just the the nature of having been immersed in, in records for my whole life, I guess. So I want to do this, if you don't mind. Like, I want to kind of walk through and, and listen to mm -hmm. several of the songs that you write about and just talk about them and sure. the imprint that all these made on you. <clears throat> Starting with the start, <laughs> you write in the book that the song that made the first dent in your musical mind, which is your <laughs> turn to phrase, which is lovely, uh, is Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. Don't, don't play the whole thing, though. <laughs> you know, I think at the time that I'm talking about uh, in the book, I didn't know the name of that song, I don't think. I don't think I would have even known anything about it other than when I picked up a guitar and I tried to... Imagine how somebody plays it. You know, you put your hands on the, the neck and you do this. And I think that I went, bon, bon, bon. <laughs> you know, I think it's like, it really is so, ele it. <laughs> it's so elemental. It's like stumbling across some new element that gets added to the table of elements or something. You know, when somebody right. comes up with a riff like that, it's like, oh, right. it's like, I should give it a scientific name and an atomic weight. Right. <laughs> There is a song in the book called Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down, mm -hmm. which is just a haunting, beautiful thing. Um, originally, this was sung by a guy named Frank Prophet. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's listen to some of this. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. That's your version of this song. That's uh, you, Uncle Uncle Tupelo's version of that song, yeah. That's your band uh, before Wilco, Uncle Tupelo. You loved the song so much that, that you guys recorded a version of this song. It's like when I hear myself singing that, I can hear myself trying to reach for the gravitas of the original. I don't know. I'm like, it's so low for me to sing. You gotta shout until I tear your kingdom down. The original that I heard um, is sounds like a very old man that has earned the fear, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know. And that's one of the things I think I responded to also is hearing 
these old folk songs and how they had lasted and survived for long periods of time. And there's um, some sort of, they're fear-based, but there's a catharsis to them uh, that I, I could relate to that felt like punk rock to me, you know, felt very similar to the way punk rock would, uh, felt like a safety valve or a release, you know, of anger and, and fear. For I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Can I use this as a pivot point to ask you about your understanding of religion as a kid? Did you grow up in a religious family? No. Um, my mother was very suspicious of religion, particularly, I think that she thought the clergy and she thought they were, I think she was suspicious of people in a lot of ways. She, was, she, she thought they were phony. Uh, um, All the people. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And did any of your own thoughts fall neatly into some kind of religious framework? No, it never made much sense to me. I think I inherited a lot of my mom's skepticism. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's, you know, in my DNA. Uh, but then you went all in, Jeff. Not on Christianity, but you ended up converting to Judaism in large part, as I understand it, because your kid, your son, was, was going through the process of being mm -hmm. bar mitzvahed. Your, your wife mm -hmm. is Jewish. You know, one of the things that our rabbi told our older son when he was being bar mitzvahed was he asked our rabbi, what should he do if he doesn't believe in God? And his rabbi said, you doesn't matter if you believe in God. What matters is that you search hmm. for the sacred. And that made sense to me. And in a way, you could take that as, as almost anything, you know, like, well, look for beauty, you know, look for whatever sacred means to you. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really beautiful. And it felt like it was in line more than any experience I'd ever had in, in any organized religion, uh, yeah. felt more honest. Yeah. Um, Will You Love Me Tomorrow by Carol King. You wrote that there was a point when you were doing that song as an encore with Wilco, and it felt to you like the most honest that you could possibly be with an audience. Can you tell me why? Well, because I, didn't, I had never written a song that expressed that as well. fear of love being fleeting, of loving somebody more than they love you. But will you love me tomorrow? Early on in Wilco, there was a, a real sense of like, do I really get to do this? Do I really get to do this thing that I love so, so, so much? And and are, are you going to let me do this? Yeah. Are you going to love me enough so I get to keep doing this? I was saying that very explicitly to the audience. Are you are you going to come back next time we play in town? <laughs> are you going to be, you know, will you still love even after? Because I think there was also one of the things that is embarrassing to me about being on stage still to this day is that it's so clearly that. It's so clearly you wanting some approval. Yeah. And there's a nakedness to that 
uh, just by being willing to walk out on a stage that nobody needs to psychoanalyze you. They just know, oh, you wouldn't be up there if you didn't right. want me to show you that I love you. Jeff Tweedy is the lead singer of Wilco, the author of the new book, World Within a Song. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere November 10th. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. We've got some changeable weather ahead. Tonight, partly cloudy, pretty windy and cold, about 35 degrees. Tomorrow should only make it to the mid-40s with sunshine, gusty winds again, some gusts as high as 32 miles an hour. And for Thursday, a preview of wintertime. It should be windy with some sleet and cold rain, temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A member of Israel's parliament who also served in the military says a month ago today when Hamas attacked Israel, he put on his uniform to step in. The scene at a music festival was gruesome. When I drove along the road, suddenly I realized the horror. I had to drive my car very cautiously in order not to hit one of the bodies. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, no Mississippi governor has lost re-election in 20 years, but Democrats are increasingly convinced that the incumbent Republican is vulnerable. They're giving millions to help his opponent. Scores of French love letters from the mid-18th century have been opened for the first time since they were written. Also, Washington, D.C. celebrates beloved pandas before returning them to China. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Polls are closing at this hour in Kentucky, where the incumbent governor, Democrat Andy Beshear, is facing a challenge from the state's Republican Attorney General, Daniel Cameron. Meanwhile, elections being held in several states around the country today, including Kentucky, Virginia, and Ohio, could have major implications for abortion rights. 
As NPR's Sarah McCammon explains, the off-year elections are being seen as another test of the energy around the abortion issue. It's been more than a year since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and many voters in last year's midterms ranked abortion as a top issue in exit polls. This year, Ohio voters are considering a state constitutional amendment that would guarantee the right to reproductive health decisions, including abortion, at least up to fetal viability. In Virginia, where control of the legislature is currently split, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin has said he would support a 15-week abortion ban with limited exceptions if his party were to take full control. Meanwhile, Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Beshear, who's running for re-election, has gone after his Republican challenger's support for state laws banning most abortions in that state. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. The federal government is set to shut down in 10 days if Congress doesn't approve a new funding plan. House Republicans met today to see if they can get on the same page. More from NPR's Eric McDaniel. There's almost certainly not enough time to pass the full suite of bills that comprise the federal budget. Instead, Speaker Mike Johnson says he's trying to find a plan that would keep the lights on while they negotiate. But it's proving complicated to find a short-term plan that his Republicans and Senate Democrats would both back. Trust us. We're working through the process in a way that I think the people will be proud of. The Louisiana Republican would not reveal a specific timeline or substance of a proposal in a press conference. Many Republicans say that they will not back a short-term bill at current levels of spending. Others say they want to see policy concessions over the U.S.-Mexico border. But cuts or policy provisions could doom the bill in the Democratic Health Senate. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, the Capitol Building. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is promising better customer service and beefed up, beefed up enforcement at the IRS during the coming year. NPR's Scott Horsley reports Yellen told employees today that depends on continued funding, though. Yellen says the IRS is hiring more telephone operators to keep wait times down and more specialized auditors to make sure wealthy people and corporations pay the taxes they owe. Last year, lawmakers set aside tens of billions of dollars to modernize the IRS. Yellen chastised congressional Republicans for trying to chip away at that. Playing politics with IRS funding is unacceptable. Cutting it would be damaging and irresponsible. Last week, the GOP-controlled House voted to cut more than $14 billion in IRS funding to offset the cost of aid to Israel. Nonpartisan bean counters warn that scrimping on tax collection would only widen the federal deficit. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Voters in Boston today are deciding the future of the city council. WBUR's Arena Machavariani reports that voter turnout has been relatively light. By this afternoon, more than 50,000 Boston residents had cast their votes for future district and at-large city councilors. Secretary of the Commonwealth William Galvin says lower voter turnout is concerning, but not unusual for Boston. Many of the people who live in Boston are not planning on living here indefinitely, so they're very likely to vote in a presidential election or even a presidential primary and less likely to vote in a state election or least likely to vote in a municipal election. Galvin also reminds voters that mail-in ballots need to be delivered in person before the polls close today. For 90.9 WVUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. Elections are also being held in Gloucester, Revere, Waltham, Woburn, Medford, Worcester, and Springfield, as well as other communities. The Salvation Army is bringing out its iconic red kettles and bell ringers for the season. The organization in Plymouth is launching its holiday donations campaign with events today. Salvation Army says it's struggled to raise money and attract volunteers since the pandemic in part due to an increase in online shopping. The professional indoor football team is moving to Lowell. The Massachusetts Pirates are moving 
from their home arena at the DCU Center in Worcester to the Songus Arena in Lowell. Pirates president and general manager Jawad Yatim says the move to Lowell is to attract larger audiences since Middlesex County has twice the population of Worcester County. We feel like there's more opportunity in this area of the state and there's less competition and, and we just want to take it over. You know, we're a very entertaining product. You know, we're the second best football team in New England, hands down. And, um, yeah, it's a great, you know, very affordable family product. Indoor football differs from the NFL. It has a smaller field, smaller goal posts, only eight players on each side of the ball versus 11 in the NFL, and punting is illegal. The Pirates will open their season in Lowell next March. Forecast falling to almost freezing overnight tonight. Tomorrow, sunny, windy, chilly, about 46 degrees tops. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tel Aviv. A lot of people here in Israel had a challenging, disorienting day on October 7th, one month ago exactly, the day Hamas attacked. But no one has a story like Yair Golan. Golan is a politician. He was a member of the Knesset, Israel's parliament, until last year. His party is on the left of Israel's political spectrum. Golan joined the recent massive street protests against the far-right government led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Golan is also a general in the reserves, not active duty, but the morning of the Hamas attack, October 7th, he told me instinct kicked in. So by, I think, 8 o'clock, 8.30, I put on my uniform and I, I'm going to my old headquarters in the Home Front Command. So stop there a second. You said you, I'm putting on my uniform. Why was that your first thought, I have to go put on my uniform? Because... It's so unusual and sounds so bad that, you know, I cannot stay at home and I'm still in good shape. You know, I can fight. (laughs) Yair Golan had no weapon, no ammo. He was handed back his old rifle. He told me, as we chatted over tea in his back garden the other day, that his next instinct that morning was to drive south, as close as he could get to the music festival that Hamas had attacked and where people had been murdered and taken hostage. And then I got a phone call from my sister. And she asked me whether I can take someone, guys from the, who escaped the Nova Festival, whether I can take them out of the combating zone to a safe location. She sent me the location, you know, on Google map. So I drove my Toyota Yaris through the fields and I managed to find them. Who was it? Three guys who escaped a terrorist attack. And they were what, hiding, but still in danger they were, because they who were knew? Hide, They were hiding inside bushes. They were under trauma, of course. and. Uh, when I approach them, you know, I jump off the car and uh, I start to shout them, you know, uh, it's me, it's General Golan, you are safe, it's okay, please get out of the bushes. And that's what they did. <laughs> it's surreal. What's going through your head at this moment? Just focus, mission? Yeah. Okay. That's it. So I took them out. And then I got another phone call. <laughs> 
from Aaretz journalist, Neil Gontaj. Can you bring my son back? <laughs> send me a location. Well, the same procedure. He sent me a location. I drove there, found them, and took them out. And then I got another phone call. Is word spreading? General Golan is there? Yeah, if, yeah, if yeah. I don't know how. kids in I trouble? I don't know <laughs> how, but I did it over and over. But three times, three consecutive times. And the, in the third time, it was much closer to the Nova Festival location. And when I drove along the road, suddenly I realized the horror. Because there were bodies, you know, along the road. You know, I had to drive my car very cautiously because, you know, in order not to, to hit one of the bodies. You're making a swerving motion yeah, yeah, yeah. with your so hand. Yeah. All over the road. Why okay. do this? There are active duty Israeli soldiers around the area. I, I think that, that the feeling was that everything collapsed. You need to do your best in order to contribute something to the overall effort. The Israeli press across the political spectrum is calling you a hero. Is that a strange feeling for someone who... Um, fought all over his, his life. Well, I can tell you the following. Yeah. And it's not a matter of modesty. It's comparing to other things that I did in my life, it was relatively less dangerous. I fought a lot. I managed to question so many people who really fought the terrorists in the kibbutzim, in the villages, in the towns. I can tell you that if you look for bravery, talk to them, not to me. Your beautiful wife is standing here in the doorway. <laughs> and while we were waiting for you, she was telling me you have five sons together. Um, the oldest is 34 and the youngest is 19. Yep. And he You're will right. enlist in two weeks. And then all five will be serving their country? Uh, I think this is, the, this is a very Israeli story. How do you talk to them about the fight and what, what would be worth fighting and maybe dying for? <laughs> it's really it's interesting, you know. With my two elder sons, oh, even with the third one, uh, it's, it's a kind of a professional discussions. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I try to provide them, you know. Uh, You're a general. I, I get uh, it. Professional. To, to provide discussion. them is yeah. part of my experience, you know, professional guidance. As a father, is that conversation different? Yes, all the time because you think about every word. Because if you give an advice that could be lethal, wow, you're going to take it with you for the rest of your life. So I, it's a very cautious discussions from my, from my part. And I heard you had a wedding for one of your sons in this garden where we're <laughs> sitting. Everything. Last, I got all the gossip. <laughs> but it sounds like there's hope and joy amid this it was here. very difficult <laughs> moment. Right here, right behind you. Yeah, yeah. There's hope and joy still? Well, we need to leave. And we need to, to go as soon as possible to normality. There is, 
you know, I, I learned it from my father. My, my father was born in Germany and he escaped Germany while he was five years old. And half of his family was executed by the Nazis. And he told me all the time, we are going to concentrate on building, not on sorrow, not on, you know, all kind of negative feelings. We must be optimistic. And I think this is a lesson I, that lead me through my adult life. We need to be, it's not just we need to be optimistic, we need to build this optimism. We need to, to work hard in order to convince ourselves and others that we could do something really, really good. And, you know, I look at, at the Israeli nation, we did something fantastic. We need to concentrate right now, not on revenge, but on building, building, rebuilding our nation. This is a true political goal. <laughs> Yair Golan, thank you. Thank you very much. Yair Golan, Israeli politician, general, and father. On March 22, 1758, Anne Lucer wrote a letter to her husband, an officer on a French warship. Monsieur et Madame Mayu vous embrasse, et moi? Mr. and Ms. Mayu send their best, and I, who am in pain to possess you, and until this happy moment, I am and will be for the rest of my life in deepest friendship. All yours, my dear husband. Your obedient wife, Nanette. But Lucere's husband was imprisoned in England and never received her love note. Hers is among scores of letters sent during the Seven Years' War, which, until recently, sat unopened in Britain's National Archives, bound with white ribbon. I had to basically pull the string, a bit like a Christmas gift, and there there were three little packets of letters, which were clearly unopened, they were still sealed. I, I immediately felt like, you know, my heart started to beat faster and I felt like, ooh, this looks like then there might be some secrets in there. University of Cambridge historian Renaud Morieux says the letters were written on expensive, heavy paper. Some had seals of red wax. They're covered with ink, but not just from top to bottom. The sentences are written from left to right, but also they're written in the margin. You have to turn the letter around in order to continue reading. Many were addressed to sailors on the Galate warship. When the Royal Navy captured it in 1758, the letters made their way to England, where they remained sealed for centuries. In another letter, an upset mother scolds her son for not writing. On the first day of the year you have written to your fiancé, I think more about you than you about me. In any case, I wish you a happy new year filled with blessings of the Lord. I think I am for the tomb. I have been ill for three weeks. The son who's at sea is only writing to his fiancée. And here you feel that there is some, some kind of like really long, ancient kind of trope about uh, tensions in the family between the mother and, and the daughter-in-law. Maria published his findings this week in the French history journal Annals of History and Social Sciences. He says the letters offer a rare glimpse at how common people dealt with the uncertainty of war and the extraordinary efforts they made to reach loved ones. 
Some families even piggybacked on the love letters of others, inserting their own messages to sons, brothers, and husbands, in hopes that something, anything, would get through. In every letter, you've got actually multiple correspondence. So the big argument, so to speak, of the article is to say that this is really a form of collective communication. Collective communication, which, to Maria, is a testament to the power of the collective in times of crisis. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace this evening as interest rates rise. An increased number of vehicles are expected to be repossessed this year, but there's a shortage of repo agents. So who's going to collect the vehicles? A lot of the people who were in the business, a lot of them closed their agencies. A lot of the old professionals, they got old. They quit doing the work. They're retiring. A look at the vehicle repossession industry coming up in just about 10 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com, and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It was an update on Wall Street. The Dow gained almost two-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ and S&P have now had their longest winning streak since November 2021. The S&P rose nearly three-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ grew by almost a full percent. Nike is suing Boston-based New Balance Athletics. Nike accuses New Balance of copying its so-called fly-knit technology. Flying it as a type of fiber Nike uses for the upper part of its shoes. The company is suing California-based Skechers for patent infringement as well. New Balance says it respects competitors' intellectual property rights, but that Nike does not own the exclusive right to make footwear through methods that have been used for decades. In the forecast... Changeable weather tonight, partly cloudy, windy and cold, about 35 degrees. Tomorrow, only making it to the mid-40s. Sunshine, blustery winds once again, some as high as about 32 miles an hour. This is WBUR at 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com I'm Peter O'Dowd. Five years after the campfire devastated the town of Paradise, California, young people are healing by giving back. The fire was definitely a speed bump in my life, but after the fire, it like had lots of changes all for the better. We'll check on their recovery. That's next time on Here and Now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Mississippi incumbent Governor Tate Reeves has had every advantage this election cycle, from the political makeup of this deeply red state to his fundraising acumen. But one was once seen as a slam dunk for Republicans, has turned into Democrats' best shot at the governor's mansion in two decades. Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Will Stribling reports. Here in Mississippi... Uh, two of the most important things to, to folks are church and football. The Ole Miss is playing against Texas A&M. 
So I've been walking around. There are a whole lot of rebels for Tate Reeves signs and stickers around. Definitely a lot of Republican voters out here today. Well, first, uh, just tell me your name, where you're from, and what you do. I'm Jeffrey Yost. I'm from Oxford, Mississippi, and I'm a business development consultant in the defense industry. He plans to vote for incumbent Governor Tate Reeves. What meant the most to me is the leadership that he showed during the COVID pandemic. He didn't just completely lock us down. But even Yost admits Reeves faces an unusually tough opponent and moderate populist Democrat Brandon Presley. Brandon's likable and he's a good guy and so you know it's going to be a tough race for Tate. I think he'll win but nobody dislikes Brandon Presley. Presley's political career began when he was elected mayor in his small northern Mississippi hometown at only 23 years old, the youngest ever elected in the state. Now a utility regulator, he needed name ID outside of his area. To get it, he's relying on a family connection to a certain Mississippi celebrity. Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. This is my cousin Elvis. He had a song about making things shake, rattle, and roll. I'm Brandon Presley, and that's the kind of governor I'll be. Presley said he wants to make the state's economy work better for people with lower incomes by eliminating the state's highest in the nation grocery tax and cutting car tax fees in half. And as Elvis would say, thank you very much. Reeves, who got a last-minute endorsement from former President Trump, has tried to portray Presley as a puppet of liberal National Democrats. They don't just want to change governors, they want to change Mississippi. But D.J. James, a 61-year-old Holmes County resident who works three jobs, says that's not a bad thing. Tate Reeves is talking about uh, Brandon Presley wants to change Mississippi. Mississippi needs to change. We need economic development, you understand? We need, you can't buy your medicine, pay for your doctor visit. Most people start off with $10 an hour. A family of four cannot survive off of $10 an hour. James lives in the Mississippi Delta, a historically and culturally significant region of the state, but also one of the poorest areas in the country. It's a place candidates for statewide office often ignore on the campaign trail. Presley's made a point to visit multiple times. A lot of folks in the Delta feel left out and, and want to make sure, I want to make sure that they understand that their vote for governor in this race will in fact not only count but make a difference in their life. Much of Presley's statewide tour is focused on criticizing Reeves' refusal to expand Medicaid. Now we're talking about 230,000 working people that would benefit from Medicaid expansion. For years, Reeves has been Mississippi's most prominent and fierce opponent of Medicaid expansion which he refers to as welfare expansion. Adding 300,000 able-bodied adults to the welfare rolls is not the right thing to do. Demetrius Bedell, a lifelong Greenwood resident and Army veteran, says it's not welfare, it's survival. His city's hospital has long suffered financial woes. If it closes, Bedell says it's going to cost people their lives. What about the people that don't have a car? What about people that when they get shot? What about people when they have a heart attack or a stroke? That hospital is needed. If you got to take from Greenwood to go to... Grenada. It's going to take you four to five minutes to an hour. That person's going to die halfway to Grenada. Jessica Taylor analyzes governor's races for the Cook Political Report. Among Republicans, they worry that that has just been a very, very effective message that Medicaid expansion has particular resonance in a state like Mississippi. Smelling blood in the water. The National Democratic Governors Association has pumped nearly $7 million into Presley's campaign. But even with such a strong showing from Presley, Taylor says it still Reeves' race to lose. There's maybe a ceiling where Democrats can get in Mississippi. Getting over 50 is just a Herculean task. If neither candidate gets over 50 percent, the state would head to an unprecedented runoff election. For NPR News, I'm Will Stripling in Jackson.
In Washington, D.C., a team of diplomats from China is getting ready to head home. The diplomats in this case are covered with black and white fur and spend most of their time eating bamboo. Maybe you've already guessed we're talking about giant pandas. From member station WAMU, Jacob Fenston reports. President Richard Nixon visited Communist China in February 1972, a historic thaw in the middle of the Cold War. Two months later, Beijing sent a gift back to Washington. A pair of giant pandas to the American people. On a chilly April morning at the National Zoo, a delegation from China presented the bears to First Lady Pat Nixon. On behalf of the people of the United States, the pandas, she said, would be enjoyed by millions of Americans. There'd been no pandas at all in the U.S. for decades. I think pandemonium is going to break out right here at the zoo. She was right. Pandemonium did break out, and it's going strong 51 years later. See Pandy right there? I do see him right there. He's so cute, right? Yeah. Four-year-old Madeline loves pandas. She's at the National Zoo for her birthday, wearing a panda costume. Her mom, Christine Murray, says they came down from Pennsylvania to say goodbye. Pandas only exist in the wild in China, so the country has a monopoly on one of the world's cutest animals. Since 1972, China has gifted or loaned pandas to countries across the globe, often coinciding with major trade deals. It's been dubbed panda diplomacy. But now these very popular ambassadors are being recalled. I think that this has been a knee-jerk reaction to a very ugly period in U.S.-China relations. Dennis Wilder is a professor at Georgetown University and a former White House China official. He says the Chinese were angered by Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year. Then things soured even more after the U.S. shot down the alleged Chinese spy balloon early this year. It's not surprising, he says, that China would withhold pandas in response. Panda diplomacy has been positive, but panda diplomacy can become punitive panda diplomacy as well. It's not just the D.C. pandas. Other U.S. zoos have had to send their animals back after leases expired and were not renewed. The last giant pandas in the country are in Atlanta, and they're scheduled to head home early next year. Panda diplomacy appears to have been wildly successful, maybe even too successful, says Elena Songster. She's a history professor at St. Mary's College of California, and she wrote the book Panda Nation. In places like D.C., she says, the lovable bears have become entwined with local identity. I think in some ways, people identify the panda as theirs as much as or more than they think of it as something from China. As the D.C. Zoo prepares for the pandas to leave, Keeper Marielle Lolly shows off one of the crates they'll travel in. Right over here on the other side of the stairs. So it is that massive white thing. It's about She's been working on crate training the bears, just like you would with a pet. They've gotten used to hanging out in the big metal boxes, especially the female, Mei Shang. She would just sit in the crate all day if we let her. Um, she doesn't even need a reward when she goes in there at this point. She just wants to sit in there. Soon, the three pandas will be loaded into a FedEx Boeing 777 freight plane, along with more than 200 pounds of bamboo. That's one day's meal for the bears. National Zoo officials say they haven't yet begun talks to get more pandas from China, but they're optimistic panda diplomacy isn't over. In fact, while the panda house is empty, the zoo plans to spend $2.5 million revamping the panda enclosure. They hope sometime soon it will again be filled with cute bamboo-eating bears. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Fenston. This is NPR News. 
This is WBUR. 61 degrees, still pretty mild out there. Overnight tonight should be mainly dry, a lot colder, about 35 for a low on the windy side tonight. Tomorrow should be brisk, making it to the mid-40s. Sunshine returning, still pretty windy. Thursday, cloudy skies with a chance of rain and even some sleet Thursday morning. Strong winds continuing through much of the week. Listeners have the chance to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and the Community Advisory Board. Visit WBUR.org slash open meetings if you'd like to find out more. That's WBUR.org slash open meetings. 61 degrees in Boston. The time is 630. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com.